This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transform their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. Our guest today is Greg Orman. He's a Kansas businessman who, as many of you probably remember, ran as an independent candidate for the U.S. Senate in 2014 against a three-term Republican incumbent, Pat Roberts. He brought an unprecedented amount of attention not only to Kansas, but to the modern election process itself, and that resulted in a new book. He's recently released it called A Declaration of Independence, and it's subtitled How We Can Break the Two-Party Stranglehold and Restore the American Dream. Now, as I said, uh, Orman is a Kansas businessman. He currently owns Exemplar Holdings, which is a private company that invests in and manages portfolios of business throughout the U.S., throughout a variety of industries. And, you know, he's a serial entrepreneur. He has built many businesses himself in addition to managing and investing in them. So we're going to be talking with Greg today about uh, this book, as well as what all this means for small businesses, too, and how he used his entrepreneurial background in his own campaign. Welcome to the show today, Greg. Thanks, Kelly. Glad to have you here, especially right here in the middle of the political season. Let's talk, just right off of the bat, um, about your background. How did having a business background help you in your campaign, how did you use it when you ran your campaign? Well, you know that's a, that's an interesting question, mm-hmm. and and often we hear people talk about how the public sector needs to be run more like the private sector. Yes. And generally, when they make those comments, they're talking about things like efficiency and accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, my private sector experience tells me we're missing one really big aspect of how the private sector can inform the public sector, and that's in the private sector's approach to problem solving. Yes. Uh, because very, very seldom do you see a company survive and thrive and create opportunities for people that isn't really good at solving problems. Right. Uh, and as a as a business owner and a CEO of companies, I I can suggest that about 50% of what you spend your time doing day in day out is solving problems. And so, really having that background in business, that background in solving problems. Uh, helped me as it related to my campaign in terms of thinking about issues Mm -hmm. and thinking about if this is the problem we're trying to solve, uh, what's the best way to solve it? And, um, you know, looking at that as a business owner uh, means uh, addressing uh, the root cause of the problem. 
It means embracing facts, not yes. rejecting them. It also means, importantly, not vilifying opposing points of view. And in fact, in my companies, we try to have a set of guiding principles, which mm -hmm. are really uh, attributes that we want to see our employees exhibit. And one of them is that we embrace intellectual conflict. In fact, in my mind, it's the best way to get to the right answer is to yes. have all sorts of points of views uh, reflected. So when you think about transitioning from the private sector to the public sector, I think the greatest uh, skill that I learned in my private sector experience was how to solve problems. And, and it's so true. Some of the things that you just mentioned, and especially that listening to opposing viewpoints, I mean, you have a staff meeting or you, ha you have a meeting, as you say, to tackle a problem or an issue that's going on. And the first thing you want to hear is everybody's views on it. And a lot of times when you, at the end of the day or when you leave that room, it's not just uh, one person's viewpoint that solved the problem. It was, okay, we heard this and you end up with a for lack of a better word, third party idea. I mean, you know, it's something that morphed out of all of these that wasn't on the table to begin with. You know, it's getting all that out there that finally got you to this one, this solution that maybe wasn't mentioned in the beginning. Absolutely. And in fact, yeah. when I, when I uh, worked at Kansas City Power and Light, which I did for a period mm -hmm. of time, I had sold a business to them and agreed to run some of their unregulated businesses. I, I used to have a device that I used in larger group meetings, which is I put a pencil in my mouth. And that was a cue to me to stay quiet and not give my point of view because oftentimes in larger companies, uh, problem solving ends up being a little hierarchical. If mm -hmm. the boss says it, then right. everybody else wants to echo that point yeah, of view. Yeah, just gets right in line with you. And, yeah. and ultimately, that's not how you get to the best answer. Exactly. And so what I used to do was I'd put a pencil in my mouth, and I'd wait until I heard everybody's point of view, and then I tried to play the role of supporting other people's points mm -hmm. of view. And it was only if I didn't think we were considering all the right elements would I go out and actually uh, propose uh, an sure. independent point of view. Yeah, I'd never heard the pencil in the mouth. That's a good one. Uh, let's talk about your entrepreneurial background. How did you, what, what was your uh, entrepreneurial influence and how did you get started in business? Well, it had to be my father. I mm -hmm. mean, as, a, as a, a boy, I used to come. My father has had a furniture store in Stanley, Kansas since 1971. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a kid... Uh, starting when I was 13, I would come and work summers at my dad's store and just, you know, sort of watching your father, someone that you naturally admire uh, operating a business was a real influence on me. It made me want to run my own company someday. And, and in fact, as a high schooler, I used to write business plans. I remember seeing that in your book, as a matter of fact, and uh, you'd come up with all these ideas and that a lot of business owners still don't have a business plan, but you wrote them in high school. Well, yeah. And, and, and in fact, what would in, invariably end up happening is I would start the process of trying to to build that business and then you know, the pressures of going to school mm -hmm. and, and uh, trying to engage in extracurricular activities, I would, I would not start the business. Uh, often I would read in Forbes magazine or another business publication several years later about someone who started the very business that I had thought <laughs> about starting and had made a fortune. And so I decided when I got out of college, I was going to start the first good business idea I had. My father always used to say to me, one concrete action is better than a thousand good ideas. That's true. And so uh, my idea was a company called Environmental Lighting Concepts. It mm -hmm. designed and installed energy efficient lighting systems. 
uh, in commercial and industrial buildings. It was the first good business idea I had coming out of college. Frankly, if I had known in the beginning what I learned over the first five, uh, first nine months, I never would have started that business. But you know, once you do it, you're as an it. entrepreneur, once you're in it, you got to figure out how to make it work. Right. And that is the one you eventually sold to KCPNL, right? Yeah, we sold okay. 70% of that company to Kansas City Power and Light, and then I agreed to, to move to, to Kansas full time in 1996 and uh, run their unregulated energy services businesses, mm -hmm. which later became all of their unregulated businesses. Uh, and I did that until 2002. There was kind of a, a little hidden thing in the book that talked about how you actually got uh, an advantage in politics because you'd learned how to drive a truck for your dad oh, yeah. when you were uh, driving the furniture truck and it uh, got you kind of your first assignment, if I remember right. I don't remember exactly the details. Well, when I, when I went to college, I actually joined the college Republicans at the mm -hmm. time. And, and now, obviously, I'm, I'm a lifelong avowed independent. But at the time, I, I really felt like uh, the Republican Party was speaking more to me. And uh, I, I went to an advanced team meeting for George H.W. Bush's uh, presidential campaign. And uh, at the advanced team meeting, uh, the the gentleman running it asked if anybody had any experience driving a truck. And I was the only one in the room who raised my hand, probably 40 or 50 people in the room. And I raised mm -hmm. my hand as having experience driving a truck. And he sort of looked at me and he said, not a pickup truck, a real truck, mm -hmm. you know, shot me a look like I was some spoiled college kid. And I said, no, in fact, I've, I've, I've driven my father's furniture delivery truck. So he he tossed me the keys. He said, it's out in the parking lot. Why don't you take it for a spin? Tell me if you can handle it. And and the next morning, I ended up driving that truck with the entire National Press Corps on the back of it. <laughs> uh, and I lurched forward at about five miles an hour as, as the vice president at the time uh, took a five-block walk uh, to a campaign event in Trenton, New Jersey. Wow, that's a cool story. So how did all of this lead you to writing this book? You were um, aligned with the Republican Party, as you just said, uh, at one point. And now this book, A Declaration of Independence, heavy emphasis on the ENTS in independence. Uh, why this book? Well, you know, personally, I had um, always been fiscally more responsible, socially a little bit more tolerant. And for a period of time, I did line up more with the Republican Party. But, it, you know, as time went on, it became clear to me uh, that I was really much more independent minded. And in the book, I talk a lot about how political independence really isn't about an ideology. Mm -hmm. It's about a way of approaching politics. It's about putting country ahead of party. It's, it's about trying to solve problems with genuine in interest as opposed to trying to solve problems in a way that advance the interests of one party over the other. Uh, and so, so ultimately, uh, when, when we were thinking about the experiences that we had in the campaign, we, we realized that, that there was more that we wanted to say. And so, so the book, in some senses, is a little bit of a campaign souvenir. Now, my wife, Sybil, was also pregnant in the last month of the campaign, so she also refers to our daughter, Imogen, as a campaign souvenir. But uh, so, the, so the book and my daughter are really the two things that we got out of the campaign. Okay, on that note, we're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to talk more about what's in the book and what it means for you as a business person. You're listening to Smart Companies Radio on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, and, of course, companionship. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive, and now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance will come in with this group. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Looking to establish your brand as an industry leader? Want to deliver helpful, relevant content to your niche audience? Look no further. Our staff at Custom Publishing can produce branded newsletters, magazines, podcasts, and so much more. We'll take you from concept to distribution or assist you with any stage in between. Writing, editing, design, audio production, voiceovers, digital, print. If you have a communication need, we have a solution. Call 913-831-8100. Call us today and discuss the possibilities. That's 913-831-8100 for all your custom publishing needs. Good morning. Welcome back to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. We're visiting here this morning with Greg Orman. He's a Kansas businessman who ran as an independent in the 2014 election for the U.S. Senate against Pat Roberts. And he wrote a book recently. It's called A Declaration of Independence, How We Can Break the Two-Party Stranglehold and Restore the American Dream. He ended by talking about how it was really a souvenir of his campaign. But really, um, it, it's the subtitle says a lot there, how we can break that two-party stranglehold and restore the American Dream. Why do you think that Number one, we need to restore the American dream. And number two, why the two-party system itself is the stranglehold on that dream. Well, you know, if you look at uh, any number of statistics, it's clear that we're at a point in our country's history where we really need to change things. We are spending more and more money as a country, and yet it's harder than ever for the average American to get ahead. Uh, Household, median household income hasn't risen since 1999. Um, We see pretty significant uh, income inequality. We see pretty significant wealth concentration. Uh, We see a whole host of issues that aren't being addressed. And, you know, this was one of the things we talked a lot about in the campaign. My concern is if we don't change what's going on in Washington, our standard of living, our status in the world, and the very existence of the middle class in America is at risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you talk about the two-party stranglehold and and how that's going on, I'd like to take us back to 1948. Harry Truman, a good Missourian, was running for re-election as president of the United States, and he ran against the 80th Congress. He referred to it as the do-nothing Congress. Mm -hmm. And I think most people who have uh, some some knowledge of history are aware of that. The Mm -hmm. do-nothing Congress was something that has, has stuck in the popular narrative for a long time now. The 80th Congress, the Do-Nothing Congress, passed eight times as much legislation as the 113th Congress. That, that I didn't know. Wow. And so if you think about it, we really aren't getting things done anymore uh, in, the, in, in Congress. In fact, what I've described in the book is uh, each congressional session seems to be about 18 months where we engage in show votes and failure theater Uh, with the intent of setting up the themes upon which we're going to run the next congressional elections, and then the next six months are spent running for office. And there's very little that gets done for Mm -hmm. the American people. There's very little that gets done by way of of problem solving. Exactly. Now, when it comes to business people, uh, a lot of times 
especially in this day and age, business people are being vilified. <laughs> you know that, that they're one percenters, and uh, it's a lot about Wall Street. Uh, business. I, I would offer that small business owners are in a different class. So there, a lot of them are working business owners. You know, they're working, and a lot of them aren't even taking salaries, or they're taking lower salaries than some of their uh, employees even. And so, what are some of the things that? What, how is that impacting these business owners? And well, what can uh, the government do to help? Them? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. And in fact, I talk a little bit about uh, some of the demagoguery around the 1% mm-hmm. in the book. And I say, you know, I, I was very careful in the campaign, and I continue to be very careful when I talk about issues about income inequality, not to vilify wealthy people, because uh, most of the wealthy people that I know got that way by taking risks by working hard, by mm-hmm. putting themselves out there. Yeah, in some cases they got a little bit lucky, but but they were the ones that put themselves in a yes. position to be Mortgage successful. Mortgage their homes or, you know, Exa- didn't take salaries for a while. Exactly. Like yeah. and, and I think it's very dangerous when we look at the rich and we make the assumption that they got there because they were lucky or because they they knew the right people or the right politicians or they took shortcuts. Because doing that ends up creating sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. We think that that our state and life is predetermined, uh, and therefore it becomes really a prescription for stagnation, Mm -hmm. uh, not something to inspire people to try to strive to achieve the American dream. So I'm very careful when I talk about issues of income inequality. The problem with Congress and the problem with what's going on in Washington as it relates to small businesses is small businesses are very innovative. They survive when they have certainty. And so as an example, in the campaign, I had multiple people say to me things like the lack of clarity on immigration reform were really affecting their businesses. I talked to people who owned restaurants who said, we think we're complying with the law, but we don't know. I talked to people who said, yeah, everybody who's who works here has fi- filed the right paperwork. They've got the right the right social security numbers, et cetera. And yet uh, occasionally we lose a whole lot of people because apparently they haven't actually followed the rules. Mm -hmm. And so that lack of certainty is a real problem for small business owners. I talked to Dairy Farmers of America as an example. And at the time they were considering building a milk processing facility in the state of Kansas. They had over 60 member dairies in the state of Kansas and they were shipping all the milk from those dairies to Colorado to be processed because they didn't want to spend the tens of millions of dollars that they would have to spend building a plant only to have no one to work in it because mm-hmm. of all of the rhetoric around immigration and immigrants. Right. And so uh, ultimately the, the lack of clarity in Washington, D.C., the lack of their ability to get together and solve problems uh, creates uh, a complexity that small businesses have to deal with. It's very damaging, very difficult yeah. to deal with. Yeah, and we didn't talk about this before the show, but uh, when I was uh, the national chair of the National Association of Women Business Owners in 2010 and was in Washington, D.C. a lot, and we would poll our members, you hit the nail on the head, uncertainty. That was the number one thing that always came out in the surveys of our members, whether it was immigration, whether it was taxes, whether it was what are our obligations going to be under this proposed health care act what are you know a number of these different things and uh, some people would say uh, oh getting funding which is always a big deal but certainty is not one uncertainty is not one that uh, the average person I think would put up there but you're absolutely right it echoes what our members 
said in 2010. Well, and again, small yeah. business owners are innovative. They're problem mm-hmm. solvers. They're going to get it done no matter they're, what. They're going to yeah. figure it out, yeah. but they need to know what the rules of the game are. Yes. And if you create an environment where they don't know what the rules of the game are, where they can't plan, mm-hmm. uh, that's very damaging, not only to small businesses, but to the people that they employ. And it makes it harder for them to make investment decisions, not only in their yeah. plant and their equipment, but it makes it harder for them to make investment decisions in people. Absolutely. And that's a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we hear the numbers about the the people who are dissatisfied, who want different people in Congress, and yet... It seems like election after election, we keep electing some of the same people or same kinds of people. Why is that? Well, and I talk a lot about this in my book, but we, you know, as much as we hear politicians talk about embracing innovation and embracing competition, and in fact, Uber was the example that I use in the in the book. You know, Uber is a company that's come along and, and dramatically disrupted the taxi. Uh, industry and as a result created a lot of wealth and also created an innovative new service that a lot mm-hmm. of people really value. Um, they did that, however, by by breaking into a system that allowed them to break in. If you look at what's going on in Washington, Democrats and Republicans, whenever they get an opportunity, they rig the rules to make sure that they prevent outside competition. So while we abhor cheating in the marketplace, we seem to allow it to happen in politics day in, day out. And you just have to look at my campaign in 2014. You know, in 2014, uh, the Republicans engaged in what I would call an unprecedented rescue effort uh, to rescue uh, Senator Roberts' uh, seat and preserve it for the Republicans. What was their natural reaction after that? Their natural reaction wasn't to say, how do we get better candidates? Or how do we do more to meet the needs of Kansas voters and Kansas business Mm -hmm. people? Their natural reaction was to say, how do we change the rules to make sure this never happens again? Right. And so Secretary of State Kobach went ahead and introduced a couple of pieces of legislation, one which would have us going back to straight party line voting. Mm -hmm. Well, in a straight party line vote, there's no choice to vote for an independent. And and the goal there really is to disenfranchise. And so so one of the reasons, and Charlie Whelan, who runs an organization called The Centrist Project, put this best in one of his reviews of my book in U.S. News and World Report. He said, you know, people say they like lobster, And yet, when they go to the buffet at the wedding line, they always pick the steak or the chicken. Well, the reason they do that is because there's no lobster on the buffet line. And and so so, so to suggest to them, to suggest to uh, to, to folks that, in fact, they really don't like lobster would would be untrue. The reality is folks do want different choices. Um, They are looking for people who are more interested in advancing the interests of our country instead of the interests of a particular party. But ultimately, we don't get those choices because of the ways the rules are written. Mm -hmm. And you almost ran, well, you were very heavily persuaded to run as a Democrat. uh, And you ended up going ahead because people said you have no chance of winning as an independent. But up until, and you did run as an independent, but up until uh, very close to the election, you were neck and neck with uh, the incumbent in the polls. 
and uh, then I think it was 10% difference on when yeah, all we, said we, and done. We were actually leading in the polls, and in fact, mm-hmm. the exit polls themselves were tied on the day of the mm-hmm. election. So, you know, we ultimately ended up losing the race, but it was clear that our campaign was resonating. It was clear that the voters of the mm-hmm. state of Kansas were saying, you know, we want something different. We want, we want people who are going to go there and try to solve problems. It's interesting, as a business owner, there are only six United States senators uh, who have ever run a business. Really, it's and that so, low. You know, if you th- if you think about that, and and in a country where we think our the underpinnings of our, our of our economy, our capitalistic economy, our businesses and business owners, we've we've only got six of them in the United States Senate. Wow. So you're you're close race there. How do you think that bodes for the future of independence? Well, I, I look at uh, what we're trying to do with independence and independent candidates a little bit like the four minute mile. You know, it's going to be perceived as being very difficult for independents to win until one does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think we're going to see more and more voters gravitate to independents. We're going to see more and more people who are involved actively in politics start to volunteer for independents and start to contribute money to independent campaigns. And that's really what our goal is. Our, our goal is to get someone over the finish line. Uh, and so that we can demonstrate that there is an alternative. And I think we would see a dramatically different Washington if we had a third point of view sitting at the table. Mm-hmm. It would be very, you know, today what we have when, when you have any media show about politics, you have a Democrat and you have a Republican, and invariably they battle each other to a tie. Yes. And, and uh, ultimately, if we had that third point of view, it's a little bit like problem solving in business. Exactly. You know, the more points mm-hmm. of view we have, the greater clarity we're going to have. When uh, you talk about the two-party system, that a lot of the things that a lot of what people say is that I can't stand seeing another negative ad, another negative negative commercial. If you had an independent in the middle of it, do you think that they would be forced to uh, be a more positive campaign? How do you think that would impact that yeah, negative I, dynamic? I, I really do, and in, in part, it's about math. Because if you're running a negative ad and there's two candidates in the race, the goal is to knock one candidate down and and by definition, the other candidate benefits. But if you've got three candidates in the race and you run a negative ad against one candidate, two candidates benefit. Mm -hmm. And so you have to start thinking about uh, how you spend your dollars and are you spending them effectively and would we be more effective uh, instead of running an ad that, that helps one of my opponents, would we be more effective running ads that promote the positive attributes of the candidate that we support? And so while I don't think negative ads would go away, uh, I think if we found ourselves in an environment where we had competitive independents running in races, uh, we would see a higher proportion of positive ads being run. And I think that would fundamentally uh, change our politics. You know, the, the big message of your book is that the system's broken. Uh, that, that's a, a big message. Uh, but the second part of there, and, you know, restoring the American dream, and that, that, that implies action. So what can we do, especially as business people, what can we do to write things? To, well, and when I say write, just get something done. What can we do? Well, what I've, what I've suggested and what I ask people to do in the mm-hmm. book is to declare their independence. Uh, to break from both parties and say, I I think for myself. And Mm -hmm. so you're going to have to earn my vote. Right now, I think politicians think that, well, just because that person's a Republican or that person's a Democrat, I can count on their support. Mm -hmm. I really don't have to do anything to earn it. And I think we as voters need to send a message to politicians in Washington that you can't go there and hide behind your party label. You've actually got to go there and get something done. 
Uh, you know, as business owners, if we spend our days trying to figure out how to avoid solving problems, try to figure out how to avoid making tough decisions, uh, we wouldn't be business owners no, very long. No. Uh, and, and so I think we should demand the same of our politicians. And I think the best way to do that is to tell them that you can't, you can't count on our vote as a foregone conclusion. You've got to earn it. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit like having a supplier who knows that you're a captive customer. You know, that supplier is going to raise your price. They're not going to give you great customer service. They're not going to treat you well. When you call them on the phone, they're going to they're going to put you on hold and be a little rude. Uh, And ultimately, that's what we have in in Washington, D.C. When the elected officials think that they have captive voters uh, who aren't willing to hold them accountable, um, ultimately, they stop serving customers. And I think that's the reason we see a you know, a 14% congressional approval rating and a 94% re-election rate yeah. is because voters are allowing politicians to take them for granted. You talked earlier about the book and your daughter being a souvenir of your last race. That's the past. What's the future hold? Well, you know, we, we haven't made any decisions yet about future races, but I will say I thought it was a great privilege to be able to run for office, to talk to the voters of Kansas, my fellow Kansans, uh, about issues that mattered to them, things that were important to them. And so if there are opportunities in the future to do that, I, I'm, I'm, I'm open to that, and my wife's open to that, and hopefully our daughter will, will, will be open to that as well. <laughs> so we'll see. Huh? We'll have to watch. Where can people get a copy of your book, Greg? You know, it's available online, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. I think a lot of local bookstores are carrying it. So uh, if it's not in your bookstore, ask them for it. And, um and if they're not able to carry it, it's, it's available online. Greg Orman, a Declaration of Independence. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thanks, Kelly. It was good to be here. And if you'd like to learn more about how to grow your business, please visit our website at IThinkBigger.com. Follow us on Facebook, Thinking Bigger Business Media, or on Twitter at I Think Bigger. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.